0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: When Barry Johnson writes about polarities, the the example he gives, is like breathing in and breathing out. You don't have a committee in favor of breathing in and a committee in favor of breathing out. Everybody knows you've got to do both. <laughs> you don't do them at the same time. You do them, whereas in facilitation meetings, you've got the, the The vertical committee over here, and yeah. talk to the International Association of Facilitators. They say, "Man, we've be, we've been having arguments about this for fifty years." Hey,
0: everybody! Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my floral co-host Rodney Evans.
1: Hey, how's it going, everybody?
0: We are also joined today by Adam Kahane, the author of Facilitating Breakthrough How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences, and Move Forward Together, and a director of Rios Partners, an international social enterprise that helps people move forward together on their most important and intractable issues. Adam has worked in more than 50 countries with executives, politicians, generals, guerrillas, civil servants, trade unionists, community activists, and the United Nations officials. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. And hello, Rodney. Hey, hey. On today's episode, we're going to talk about transformative facilitation and how it can help us solve some of our biggest and gnarliest problems. But before we get into that, let's facilitate a check-in round.
1: Okay. You guys can tell me how I do. We will begin this episode like every episode to get equal airtime, to get to know each other, to get started promptly, etc. Our check-in question for today, which is my greatest hit of this week, is Mm. what is your go-to move when you feel uncomfortable? You're in a group setting. Something spicy is happening. We all have a move.
0: What's your move?
1: (laughs) Aaron, you can go first and then Adam, and then I'll finish this off.
0: All right. So I think if I'm not directly engaged, then I'll pretend to do something else. I you know, I'll be like, oh I, I have to go to the bathroom, I have to take a call, I like I gotta I have other things to do that are nonsense things. Um, so that's that's the move there. And then I think if I'm in it with someone or in an uncomfortable situation, then I I either lean in and really go for it or I try to change the subject. So mm-hmm.
2: that's me. Adam. Well, I guess the basic one would be extremely defensive and argumentative and blaming. <laughs> But aside from that, or more seriously, what I find myself tending to do is to physically move to the periphery, sort of mm. stand back and stand back physically so that I can sort of watch the whole thing and, and I feel safer that way. All right. Rodney, what are you doing?
1: Well, yeah, usually first I just am mad. So I felt very felt very seen there Adam. Yeah, usually I I have like some when I when I feel uncomfortable my first emotion is like, I'm irritated about this or frustrated or angry or something like that. And then usually that is followed immediately by one of two things because I don't like showing that anger. I either retreat and just like go into my own brain and start thinking about things or I start trying to like make uh, order of what feels to me chaotic. So I, I tend to go into a mode of like, okay, let's unpack this. Let's organize it. <laughs> let's figure it out. Neither of those things is always a great move, but both of them are better than me just like unloading the anger that I feel. So I am mm-hmm. conscious
0: I love you project managing your discomfort. no.
1: <laughs> it's what I do. It's what I do. It's what I do. Okay. That was fun. Uh, I had. So- I did this with a group the other day, and it was just like so many great answers. And, you know, the, the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn thing just came right out.
2: Hmm. So
1: so today's topic is uh transformative facilitation. I could not be more excited to talk about this. And I'd like to start by asking you Adam, where did you first start honing your facilitation chops? Like how did you get excited about this? How did you get started? And why are you still drawn to doing this kind of work?
2: Well, I grew up in Montreal. I studied physics and then economics and then went into the energy industry and the the reason for telling you that beginning of the story is I was really trained to be the person who had the answer, (laughs) the smart one who could come up with the right answer quickly and argue for it. And I haven't completely lost that, that habit, but the way I got into facilitation is that in 1988, I joined the uh, strategy department in the head office of Shell, the oil company in London. And that group was responsible for, yeah, for strategy for the company as a whole. And the thing that was different about it was that they didn't make strategy, they facilitated the company's executives to make strategy. Cool. And so I, I I, don't think I'd ever heard of it before. And so I, I, I got dumped into this, this work of tra- traveling all around the world, facilitating different shell management teams at the global level, at the country level, at the sectoral level, where now it wasn't for me to come up with the right answer or to tell them what the answer was, but to mm-hmm. help them figure it out together. And I mean, in retrospect, uh, my facilitation was pretty, was pretty basic. But that's how I got um, started in it. And the big change uh, or the big event in my facilitation career is in 1991, while I was still an employee of Shell, um, the company got asked to provide a facilitator to a group of leaders in South Africa who were, wanted to have meetings to think about the transition from apartheid racial segregation to a multiracial democracy. This is one year after Nelson Mandela was released from prison and three years before the first democratic elections, and they wanted to use the Shell strategic planning methodology for those conversations. So they called Shell, and as I was the youngest and most expendable member of the department, uh, I was sent (laughs) to facilitate those meetings. But the meetings were really wild or unlike anything I'd ever heard of, in the following sense, that the people in the meetings were not from one organization, a company or or a university uh, or a political party. It was 28 people from across all kinds of different organizations, black and white, opposition and establishment, men and women, left and right, business, academic, politics, civil society, trade unions. And So that was my first experience with what I'd now call multi-stakeholder problem-solving or facilitating multi-stakeholder groups. And to make a long story short, I never went back. (laughs) I ended up, Mm. you know, the usual story, resigned my job, moved from London to Cape Town, married the project organizer. And, And that's what I've been doing pretty well all day, every day for the 30, 31 years since. And the reason I... I'm still drawn to it is that I think it's useful Go into more about why Uh, I find it very challenging. It's like, I don't know, it's like being, you know, given concerts. You're always, you know, you're only as good as your last show. It's always new every time. It's always unexpected every time and you can do it your whole life and still be learning every single day.
0: (laughs) It's, it's interesting. You talk about that, that first experience with a very, diverse group with potentially very different ideas about what matters and what's important and how we should solve these problems. What did you sort of take away from that that made you drawn back to these high stakes, multi-stakeholder scenarios versus maybe something where people are more aligned? what What is compelling about that?
2: Well, what's compelling is that if you are successful, and I was reasonably successful in that First project people are able to do something that that they th- thought would be impossible they're able to work together productively and creatively and enjoyably even with people that they thought they could never work with that they don't agree with or like or trust mm. uh, but another way to put it which i think is more more central for me is that i discovered i have a gift for that kind of work. And a friend of mine pointed out to me that the thing about having a gift is you're not responsible for it. You were given it. So the issue isn't about being proud of your gift. It's about using it. The Problem is to have a gift and not use it. And so I found I have a gift for that kind of work for working in very difficult, complicated, heated, high stakes settings, uh, that I can do well and can make a contribution and can earn a living. And what what more would you want from life than that? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I can't think of anything better.
1: It sounds pretty great. It sounds like the The Japanese Ikigai model of what the world needs, what you can do, what you can get paid for. Exactly. So your most recent book is Facilitating Breakthrough. And we'd love to understand a little bit more about what you mean by breakthrough. Like, how do you define a breakthrough? When are we having one? When do we think we're having one? What does a breakthrough really feel and look like?
2: Well, the image I have in my mind or the experience I have, and the reason I chose that word is that the opposite of breakthrough is stuck. And it's this feeling that we're, we're trying to make progress on something that matters to us, whether it's political transition in South Africa or a product launch in a company or, uh, you know, getting agreement in the school board, whatever. There's a group of us that are trying to get something done and we're just not making any progress. We're, we're at loggerheads. We, we're either not moving or we're moving painfully slow. Somebody said to me that it's like, like walking through treacle, like syrup. Mm-hmm. So for me, breakthrough is about moving from stuckness to flow. And we call our organization Rios Partners. Rios is the, the Greek word for flow so that's the the basic thing i mean is getting unstuck and moving forward and making progress advancing on stuff that really matters to us and the yeah the the progress and joy and relief that comes from moving rather than being stuck <laughs>
0: It's, it's interesting, as I hear you describe the kind of situations that you've been in and the idea of breakthrough, I'm reminded of the work of Marshall Rosenberg in Nonviolent Communication, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to be curious, since we mm-hmm. have talked about that on the show before, how that work might intersect or diverge from the kind of work that you've been doing.
2: So I'm not a real expert in Rosenberg's work, but what I know of it, is, as far as as I understand it, it's brilliant and it's certainly within the same field. Mm. And it's, you know, heuristics for communication, which are at the certainly one of the core elements of what I call transformative facilitation. I'm, I think maybe I'm doing some things that are in addition, but mm. I'm pretty sure the core or uh, that there's a huge overlap.
0: Yeah, it feels that way to me too because I think at the core of it at least in our practice NVC is about kind of returning to feelings and needs and mm-hmm. and and essentially trying to have an empathic human connection somewhat restored seeing each other yeah. before you go to the work of solving the problem or or thinking yeah. of you know solutions and alternatives. And so that does feel like maybe it's at least somewhat spiritually aligned.
2: Yeah, so let me give you, so yes, for sure. And let me tell you a story about about that. So a lot of our work takes place in workshops, which means getting people together, either on Zoom or more usually in person, for a few days to work on this important thing, this important and difficult and stuck thing that we're all concerned about in one way or another. And in these workshops, we do lots of different things, but the simplest thing we do is something we call the paired walk. And mm. it, there couldn't be anything simpler. It's uh, the instruction is: look around the room, uh, find the person who you thought you'd be least likely to talk with, and go for a walk with them outside for thirty or forty-five minutes. Or if if you're if walking doesn't work for you, sit facing in the same direction. And it always interested me that this is always people's favorite module not (laughs) not the complicated things with the post-its and the matrices and the lego blocks and the whatever but this walking outside and they always say wow that was great can we have can we do that again like that was really useful not like (laughs) this other stuff you're making us do (laughs) and so i always wondered why is it that 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 is so powerful and because I've been doing it for years and I've found this consistently. And a few years ago, as I, w- I was talking with a, a woman in Mexico, Lucila Cerviche, who is a, a Catholic theologian, and she has been involved or was involved in work we were doing in Mexico. So she had experienced this walk. And she said, I'll tell you, Adam, why it's uh, so important. It's not there's mechanically things that are interesting about it, that you're moving through space together, you're encountering the world, you know, the stick on the path, and you're navigating together, and you're facing in the same direction, and you're, you're advancing, and you're not looking at your phone, mm-hmm. and you're not arguing over a piece of paper. So, mechanically, that's been clear to me. But she said there's something more than that. The thing about the walk is, first, you are encountering another human being just moving through the world together, and you're accepted as a fellow human being. And then as a result of that, you might decide to change your thinking or your relationship or what you're going to do. And she says, Adam, that is the opposite of the conventional Catholic confessional, where first <laughs> you admit you are wrong, and then you are reaccepted into the community. And she Inverted. says, that's why people love the walk, because the human, the connection as fellow human beings is first, not the, I have to agree with you before we can do anything. That's so great. I love that. And, and I want to try it. And you could call that a spiritual principle or a practical principle. I'm not too fussed about that. But it does exemplify the importance of this primary activity of being humans in the world together.
1: Nice. I am curious to talk about other kinds of, it sounds like that was a, like a lightning bolt moment for that participant. You have described a lightning bolt moment for yourself from a 2017 workshop in Columbia that really helped you to redefine your work as a facilitator. Can you tell us everything about that? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, so I work and have worked all over the world in Canada, the United States, and many other places. But I've also worked a lot in Colombia for a long time. And um, you probably know Colombia has had a terrible civil war, very violent situation. And in 2016, a peace treaty was signed that ended the 52 year civil war, or at least part of it. Doesn't mean uh, Mm -hmm. everything is peaches and cream in Colombia, but some progress was made. And I worked on and off in Colombia for 25 years, but in 2017, the incident referred to was a workshop we did in the southwest of the country after the signing of the peace accords. And it was a workshop that brought together people from that region, which has a very troubled history. And so it was philanthropists and business owners, especially of sugar companies and farmers and Afro-Colombians and indigenous people and academics. And a man showed up at this workshop who I know, his name is Francisco Duru, and he had just been appointed the week before, the president of the Commission for Truth, Reconciliation, and Non-Repetition, which is part of the peace treaty, a big job, been appointed this super difficult, super important national position. So I was very surprised that he showed up at this local workshop, but I was thrilled. I I admire him enormously. And uh, he said, well, you know, I'm starting this important job and I'm interested in seeing how you do this because I'm interested in how do you how do we work together across deep differences? Because that's what I'm uh, I'm really going to be involved in. And anyhow, the workshop w- was going well uh, in a way not unlike uh, lots of other workshops of that sort. And people were starting to uh, relax and work together and be hopeful that maybe they could do something and they'd spend all day in pairs and small groups and walks and working with post-its and Lego and uh, in dialogue, etc., lots of stuff, and at the end of the day, Francisco comes running up to me. He's a very energetic fellow, and he said, "Adam, I see what you're doing." And I said, "Well, what am I doing? Tell me what I'm doing." I, I was interested, but I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, "Adam, you are removing the obstacles to the expression of the mystery." <laughs> uh, he's a former head of the Jesuit order in mm. Colombia. He uh, was well right. a very famous peacemaker, and I—I I could tell he was saying something important. I didn't know what he what he meant, and so I sat with him at, at dinner that night, and we spent hours trying to understand what he meant. And I was no wiser about it, uh, because of course when he used the word "the mystery," it's not like an Agatha Christie mystery that you figure out the <laughs> answer to. It means the un—you know—something really unknowable. So I didn't understand what it was then. I don't understand what it was, what it is now, but. For me, the clue, the the really important thing was the practical part, or the part I got was the practical part, which is, Adam, what you're doing is you're removing obstacles. And this was so important because most people think that facilitation is about getting people to do things when I give lectures on facilitation, 100% of the time people will say, well, how do you get people to come together? Or how do you get people to speak openly? Or how do you get people to, to do what they say they're gonna do? And I've always known this, It's I can't get anybody to do anything. Well, in general in life I can't, but certainly not as a facilitator. And he was offering a different idea, a fundamentally different idea, that what you're doing is not getting people to do things, but removing the obstacles that are blocking them from moving forward. And that conversation, that sentence was the inspiration for this book, because I think if you're trying to facilitate breakthrough, that's what it's all about. Not about getting people to do things, but about removing obstacles. And if you focus on that, that's all you have to do. If you focus your attention on that, that's all you need to focus your attention on. Do you feel like that describes
0: the difference between a traditional facilitative approach and this alternative approach is really about, are you trying to get them to do stuff or (laughs) or to remove?
2: Yes. I do think that's exactly it, that there are two conventional modes of facilitation which I call the vertical approach and the horizontal approach. They're opposite, but they both involve trying to get people to do things. And this approach that I think is required, transformative facilitation, is about removing obstacles. I'm not saying I invented it. I think all great facilitators do what I call transformative facilitation. And all I've done is uh, articulate what that involves and why, in essence, it is about removing obstacles. So now I am
0: curious about the horizontal and the vertical methodologies. Can you say just a couple words to give some color to those?
2: Yeah. So I'm not using vertical and horizontal referring to any other theory. I just had to choose two words that express the essence of it. And the way of Understanding this, or the, the way of introducing it, is is to recognize this funny thing that in English the word team is both a singular noun and a plural noun. I, I didn't realize that, but if you try to yeah. write the word team, you you have to decide: am I going to say the team is, or are you, you going to say the team are? They're both correct, mm-hmm. and this is a good way to remember that there's between vertical and horizontal. In vertical facilitation, you're focusing on the singular team. You're saying Mm -hmm. what's the objective, the team's objective is the team's needs, the, the team's need is. And what you're saying is that the singular team is more important than the members of the team. You know you're in a vertical situation where people say, uh, could you get with the program or could you leave your own agenda at the door or mm. can you be more of a team player? And this has great upsides. That's <laughs> it's how you get coordination and cohesion. These are things you want from a team. The downside is if that's all you're doing, you're going to have rigidity and domination. So that's what I call vertical facilitation. And most people, facilitators think that's what facilitation is. Right. Yeah. Now there's a second kind of uh, facilitation, which is the opposite and which is also quite popular these days, which I call horizontal facilitation. Here, the primacy is on the team plural, the team think, the team want, the team care about, the team's objectives are, and so here the organizing principle is what really matters is what's going to work for each person, each member Mm -hmm. of the team. The upside of this is you get autonomy, you get variety, diversity. The downside is if that's all you're focusing on, you're going to end up with fragmentation and gridlock. And so when you put it that way, it pretty quickly becomes clear that this is not a choice or that it's incorrect. To say it's a choice, either I'm going to do vertical or horizontal. They are two poles of a polarity. Uh, when Barry Johnson writes about polarities, the the example he gives is like breathing in and breathing out. You don't have a committee in favor of breathing in and a committee in favor of breathing out. Everybody knows you got to do both. <laughs> you don't do them at the same time. You do them. Whereas in facilitation meetings, you've got the 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 vertical committee over here. And yeah. I talk to the International Association of Facilitators. They say. Man, we, we've been having arguments about this for 50 years. Every meeting is it vertical. No, it's horizontal. No, it's vertical. No, it's horizontal. So the, what, if you put it like this, you realize this is a polarity. You have to do both, not at the same time, but alternately. And so what I call transformative facilitation is about moving back and forth sometimes using vertical sometimes horizontal like breathing in and breathing out and that's how you get the best of both and avoid the worst of both
1: so just continuing on that path because i I think that's really interesting and super insightful can you talk to us about some moves so you have a group you have (laughs) these polarities what am i watching on the movie of adam transformatively facilitates these humans
2: well i think the word move is a good move because a move's not a recipe it's something you try out and in this book i suggest that there's only 10 moves you need now i don't know if it's eight or 12 or 14 but it's not a million it's not one and it's not a million it's it's around 10. and if you can master these 10 moves then you can facilitate you you can do this kind of facilitation and you can facilitate breakthrough the difficulty is or the challenge is you don't make them in any particular order you mm-hmm. make each move as and when it's needed so mm-hmm. th- th- that's why it's not straightforward but the the 10 moves are and they they come in pairs there's a vertical one and a horizontal mm. one but mm-hmm. the first pair is advocating and the other, the, the breathing out is inquiring. So you have to, at, you're advocating, you're inquiring, mm-hmm. you're concluding, you're advancing. You'll recognize each of these are polarities. You're mapping and you're discovering, you're directing and accompanying, and you're standing outside and standing inside. So that's five times two, 10 mm-hmm. moves. And The skill is to be able to pay attention to know which move do I need to make next. That's all there is to it. Simple as that. (laughs) Just that simple and just that hard. (laughs) You know, the analogy I, I thought of is it's like if I came into your kitchen and I put on the table, you know, a pound of shrimp and flour and chocolate and cayenne pepper and celery and salmon steaks and sugar, 10 ingredients. And I said, you got it all, you know, you can, you can make, you you can make meals for the next, next month with that. If you're a useless cook like me, you just look at this and you'd go, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I see eggs, maybe I can make a fried egg, but if you're an experienced cook, you say, great, fantastic. Yeah. Wow, I could do so many things with this. I know I'll put this, this, and then then I'll try this and that. So that's what it's like. These 10 moves are like 10 ingredients. And when you learn how to use them, you can do all you can do anything with them.
0: Flipping the pancake.
2: Flipping the
0: pancake. I, um, <laughs> I noticed in the book that you talked about how the book and the method is for leaders and managers and coaches and mediators and organizers and chair people and all these different walks of life, anyone who wants to facilitate breakthroughs, I'm curious why the world needs more facilitators. But I'm also curious, can you be a part of the team and be a facilitator of breakthroughs? Or do you need to be the other
2: person? So it's a great question uh, and or questions. And let me let me answer both of them. So the premise of the book is that the world needs more and better collaboration, and therefore the world needs more and better facilitation. That mm-hmm. yeah. the scope for getting things done by bossing people around is not zero, but it's shrinking. I mean, there are many dramatic exceptions to this, this statement. There's many a lot of support for that out. statement in this audience. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but but and for there's sure. many exceptions where people try to get things done by by forcing with different kinds of violence. But I'm arguing that the scope for that is shrinking, and therefore the world needs more and better collaboration, where different, pe- different people who have different skills and different perspectives need to bring their full selves and work together. And I'm defining or redefining the word facilitator not as a job that has to be done by some full-time person like me, but as a role that anybody can play, including members of the group, or the chair, or the coach, or the consultant. And I'm defining a facilitator as somebody who helps a group collaborate. I'm giving a, a broader definition of a facilitator, that it's not you know, a, a person with a specific degree or a specific kind of LinkedIn page. But I'm also giving a bigger definition of facilitation that it doesn't just involve helping marketing and production talk to each other, but any kind of group that's trying to, to create change in the world, whether it's in a company or a government department or a community or, or a war torn nation. And so I'm part of what I'm trying to do is explain that facilitation is a, is a bigger and more important way of contributing than is generally understood. And this is what I discovered completely by accident in South Africa in September 1991. That that role can really be useful even in the most uh, complex and conflictual contexts.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's deeply resonant for for me what you're saying because so much of our work in doing uh, org design is really around facilitation, and and I wholeheartedly agree with your assertion that it is a role to be played, not necessarily a job to be held, and all of the merits. And I'm curious to hear how and when do you see people or groups start to recognize that need, because because I find like in my own work that. Often when a moment arises and people are like, we're going to have a workshop, so you can facilitate it, or we're going to have a strategy session, would you facilitate it? They come out of that being like, whoa, we've never, we have never, you know, we've never made that kind of progress or garnered that kind of insight or whatever. And then they're like, "Okay, now back to our shitty weekly status meeting." And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. "Guess what? Right. It it could be like that all the time." So I, yeah. I'm just curious because you have tons and tons and tons of experience in this. Like, how do you create the aha that this is a persistent role that's really needed to do the kind of collaborative work a lot of us do?
2: Well, again, I'm not. I don't have much luck with getting people to do anything, but my experience is that when people discover that there's another way of working together this is a uh, thrilling and joyful <laughs> and they and they don't want to go back i'm i'm always amazed when i meet people who i worked with 20 or 30 years ago and they say wow that that experience in that group was you know one of the highlights of my life I, i'm pleased but also surprised uh, because it is unlike a lot of people's daily experience which is of yeah, being bossed about and not being able to to contribute, of facing obstacles all the time. So uh, I I guess I'm not answering your question directly, but uh, I would say that what I'm trying to do in my work or in Rios's work and in these books is just to point out there is another way and uh, it is possible. It's not easy. It's not straightforward. It's not foolproof, but it can be done. And here's a hundred times it was done and the results mm-hmm. it produced. So I'm, I'm just trying to, I don't, I'm trying to change the default mode from mm-hmm. yeah. forcing to collaborating. Love that. I mean, here, here. I am curious, you
0: share a bunch of big, fascinating stories in the book. Were there ones that didn't make the page because they obviously, you know, you you send 200,000 words and they let you have 80. So, what were the what were some of the stories of of either success or struggle that you learned a lot from and maybe weren't able to share in the in the contents of the book?
2: Well, you've read through the book, so you'll realize that most of the stories that I tell and that I've learned a lot from are stories of failure or more specifically, I think things are one way and I act accordingly and I find that things aren't like that. And I go, Oh, what happened there? And so th- that's how I learn. I don't know why that's how everybody learns, but so most of the stories are about things aren't the way I th- thought they were and something very challenging or difficult happens. And I, 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 I through that exp- through reflecting on that experience I'm able will say, Oh, okay, there's this other thing. So most of the stories are like this. And I, uh, I wouldn't say I left thing- anything on the on the cutting room floor, the way I write, and including in this book, is it's is explaining this theory and practice through stories. And I don't know, there's I didn't count, but there must be 30 stories in the book. The one experience I've had since then is, of course, this book was delivered in whatever it was, I guess a year ago, early 2021, and was written uh, in the first year of COVID, Mm-hmm. When I and I suppose you as well were forced to find a way to do this work online instead of in person, and when this when COVID hit in March of 2020, my first unimaginative reaction is, "Well, my work is all about flying long distances to bring large groups of people together in a in hotels. I guess I'll just have to stop work for until this is over." Uh, And luckily, um, more perceptive people than me in, in Rio said, no, no, we can do this work online. And we did. And we've worked quite successfully online for two years. And there are certain advantages, which I guess you're aware of. It's as easy to have a global team as a local team. It's very accessible for people who can't. Travel because of a disability or a family commitment it's easy to work in multiple languages it's very inexpensive to to use simultaneous translation and closed captioning and so it works quite well it, it certainly works much better than I thought it would and two years later I, I think we're seeing the limits of that and and that even a brilliantly facilitated online workshop has limitations sure and so that's been that's been the learning for me
0: more polarities <laughs> yeah yeah it's hard to take a walk in a zoom but it's a lot you know there's a lot well, i mean
2: actually right? i mean there are lots of imaginative ways uh, let's uh, we're going to take a 45 minute break uh here's the phone number of your partner go for a walk so with your cell phone so it can be done and there's lots of great workarounds and and mural or miro reproduce a flip chart wall quite well but there's something there's something lost in being in two dimensions that can be regained only by being in person again and so i don't think we'll go back to i think we now know that lots of things can be done virtually and that's great but we now know that not everything can be done virtually and yeah we've proven that
1: the, the last thing we wanted to ask you about was, was sort of a more global question, which is, how do you feel like facilitation is connected to power, love, and justice? It's a big one, but it's an important one.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the, the way I see the connection is the following. We talked at the beginning of this conversation that I think the essence of what I – of transformative facilitation is removing obstacles. Well, removing obstacles to what? So there's two ways to an- there's two sets of words you can use to answer that question. The ordinary words you can use would be obstacles to contribution, connection and equity. That everybody wants to or almost everybody wants to contribute Their ideas, their skills, their gifts, their energies. They want to connect to each other, to the world, to the community, to themselves. And they want contribution and connection to be equitable and fair. So I think it's possible as a, or not just possible, I think if you went through your facilitation notes or your session lab or your agenda and you color-coded what are the things I'm doing that are in essence about removing obstacles to contribution? What are the things I'm doing that are in essence about removing the obstacles to connection? And what are the things I'm doing to remove the obstacles to to contribution and connection being equitable? I think you would find that 95 or a hundred percent of your notes would be colored. One of those three. So, I think that's quite a radical boiling down of the essence to say, if you're removing obstacles to contribution, connection, equity, that's all you need to do. Now Mm. there's another way to say that same thing with words that are a little more highfalutin, but I think hint at something deeper that's involved here, which is that, and the three words that are power, love, and justice. And the, Mm. the, the difficult thing about these words is they're used in lots of different senses, so you have to define them very precisely, which I do. But the good news is they, they hint at what I believe are a fundamental human drive that everybody or almost everybody is trying to exercise power, which I define as the drive to self-realization, to exercise love, which I which I define as the drive to reunification and justice, which is a structure that enables uh, a power and love. So this is philosophical and it's uh, inspired by the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and his teacher, Paul Tillich and a very specific set of definitions, which I've alluded to of power, love and justice. But um, it hints at, or something that I believe is at the essence, and that's why the conclusion of the book deals with this, which is, in essence, transformative facilitation is about removing the obstacles to the expression of these most fundamental human drives, power, love, and justice. And that is the best I've been able to come to in understanding what Francisco de Roo meant when he said, removing the obstacles, the expression of the mystery. The closest I've gotten, I don't know what the mystery is, but the expression of the mystery (laughs) is power, love, and justice.
0: Well, there's really no better way to wrap up a Brave New Work episode than with a deep humanist philosophy. (laughs) So (laughs) I think that's a great place to, to draw things to a close. Adam, where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your work and how to do this stuff in the world?
2: Well, the book uh, is available. What do they say? Uh, wherever good books are sold <laughs> or even where bad yeah. books are sold, facilitating breakthrough, how to remove obstacles, bridge differences and move forward together. So, uh, and uh, the book, yeah, goes into all of this in more more detail and contains my contact information. But the, the work of Rios is riospartners.com, R-E-O-S partners.com. And you'll find on that website, free downloads and, and a newsletter and many examples of the application of transformative facilitation to all kinds of issues from climate change to poverty, to healthcare care, to, to democracy.
1: Amazing. Adam, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom today.
2: It was a pleasure.
0: As always, we'll do a deep dab to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.